Morning. Okay, um, we are in our fourth week of our new faith series over the book or the letter, epistle of James. Um, now, I'm, I'm doing this very quickly, but James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the one who wrote uh, this letter. And he wrote it to the Jews who were scattered throughout um, Palestine. Uh, and these Jews that he wrote to were being heavily persecuted for their faith by basically everybody. I mean, by uh, the Jews who had not converted, the, the traditional Jews, uh, they, were, uh, they were being persecuted by the Romans, they were being persecuted uh, by uh, the pagans. They, just, they were being persecuted by everybody for their faith. So he wrote them to encourage them to stand firm under that uh, immense persecution. Now, this week, uh, James discusses two problems that every Christian uh, will face or has faced, and that's religion and partiality. So I simply titled today's message, Religion and Partiality, because I'm just that creative. Now, uh, both of these uh, can be detrimental, both religion and partiality, uh, or favoritism, however your Bible might say it. Both of these can be detrimental to the spiritual health of a church or a believer. If it's left unchecked, it can be detrimental. Uh, because it's, both of these do a lot of damage, right? See, religion is not a good thing. And people hear me say that all the time, and they, they feel like I'm, I'm being you know, blasphemous. But the truth is, God doesn't like religion either. Religion is not a good thing, and actually it cultivates more problems than it does solutions. Also, partiality is not a good thing, okay? And it has destroyed churches and has destroyed people and believers forever, right? Partiality is basically when you favor one person or one group over another person or another group, right? Now... If a believer or a church is going to have success, if they're going to be effective and they're going to have, you know, success, they must love like Jesus. Because that's the core to being successful in whatever you do is loving like Jesus, right? Now, religion focuses more on the commands that people give you than the commands that God gives you, right? That, that's just what religion is. It's just man-made rules to try to make us more righteous. Uh, but showing favoritism just divides people. Religion just divides people. But God's love is supposed to unite people. So neither one of those things can be right. Now, let's jump on in today. We're going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 2 up to verse 13. But we're going to start with James 1.26. Just take a look at religion. It says, If anyone thinks himself to be what? Religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is worthless. Okay, so James transitions from some of the stuff he's been telling us really smoothly into what he's going to tell us this week. So he transitions from hearers and doers to the religion of the self-righteous people. He makes that transition, right? Remember last week we learned that it wasn't the ones who just hear or understand the word that are justified, but the ones who hear it and put it to action. So James said, uh, if anyone thinks himself to be religion, that's really important. The way James used the word thinks tells us these people were just delusional. They were self-delusion, right? The word translated religious here is the Greek word thraiskos. Okay, now pay attention to that. It refers to pious religious acts. That's what it means. That's what it translates to is pious religious acts. And pious simply means uh, a hypocritical display of spiritual virtue or virtue. That's what pious means. So the religion in that verse, in verse, 20, uh, in verse 26, is talking about a hypocritical display of virtue. Okay, when he's talking about religion. Now, most Jews at that time thought that following religious traditions actually is what made you righteous. In their eyes, it's, they didn't think about the fact that they weren't keeping all of it. They thought about the fact that, well, I keep more than you. I keep more of the law than you do, so that makes me righteous. And you hear that in churches today. People might have their own problems, so to forget about their problems, they'll judge yours and say, well, at least I'm better than you. That's kind of the same mindset that we see here. 
um, they, they thought just following those religious traditions made them righteous. So James was making it clear that their words proved they were not righteous, right? And usually what we say tells what's going on in our heart. Because he said, and yet does not bridle his tongue. He's saying, so if any man thinks he's religious and can't control his words or use godly words, then he is self-delusional. Last week, James said, those who study and obey the law of liberty, remember that, the law of liberty, are justified. Now, the law of liberty uh, is a reference to the intent of the law, the intent of the law that the Jews are missing. So I'm going to take us to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to go back and forth between Galatians 3 and uh, James 1 and 2. Galatians 3.23 says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protects us until we could be made right with God through what? Through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we are no longer... Uh, we no longer need the law as our guardian, for you are all children of God through? <laughs> you, you guys got to get louder on that. Through what? Faith. Through faith in, in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the intent of the law of Moses was not to say, let's see who can keep the most of it. It wasn't a competition. The intent of the law of Moses was to teach people, you need a Savior. When we were in the garden, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, uh, you know, he said, there's only one sin you can commit here. Now, did he know they would commit it? Absolutely. But he needed to prove to us that there was only one thing we could choose wrong in this flesh. We would choose it because we are that imperfect apart from God. And the law was designed. So he's like, well, just in case you missed that, and they did. He said, I'm going to give you the law. And what that is is I'm going to write out instructions. And if you keep every instruction just like I wrote it, you will be justified. You will be righteous. Well, just like men in today's world, do we read directions well? No, we don't. And people didn't read them well then either. And the point was not to see who could keep the most of it or that God thought they could keep it at all. The point was to teach them they were incapable of being righteous apart from God. They were absolutely incapable. It was supposed to teach them that they needed a Savior. It was supposed to make them believe and trust in the coming Messiah. See, people get confused how people got saved in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we know that people are saved by believing in Jesus, right? In the Old Testament, people were saved by the same thing. It was just two different perspectives of the cross. We look back to the cross and believe in that sacrifice for our eternal life. The Old Testament saints look forward to the coming Messiah and believed in that for their eternal life. So it has always been by faith, but the Jews just missed that. See, they were supposed to believe in this coming Messiah and that he would come and set them free from sin, uh, and he would make a way for them to have eternal life by faith alone and Christ alone. That's what they were supposed to derive from the law, but they, they totally missed that. See, when someone accepted the purpose of the law and believed, because Jesus is the purpose of the law, when somebody believed that from either perspective of the cross, they were set free, and they still are set free when they believe that, right? Thus, it's referred to as the law of liberty because it's the law that sets us free. The law of liberty is you can't keep all these rules and regulations, but, but the Messiah is coming who will keep them for you. And then all you will have to do is believe in him, and he will bring liberty into your life, or he will set you free. That's the law of liberty. But the Jews who were persecuting uh, James' readers ignored and maligned that purpose for their own gain. They just ignored and maligned it, right? Have you ever been, how many people here watch documentaries? Just to be honest. Hey, come on out, nerds. I'll admit it. I do it. Okay, good. And you ever notice, though, when you, when you, when you look at, at back through history, how bad 
people maligned faith, how bad people maligned religion. We have some of the craziest religions in the world because people try to make a religion that fits them rather than trying to accept the, you know, the rules that God's left for us, right? So here's what they did. The Jews maligned the law because they chose a distorted and self-righteous view of the law that was based solely on tradition and works and ceremonies. That's what they accepted. Now, I was raised in a church that was a lot like that. I mean, it was, it was about, did you keep the rules of the church? And it used to drive me crazy. Because even before I was a, a believer, I used to think to myself, gosh, it's got to be more than that. Because the church I went to had some weird rules, right? So I always thought it has to be more than that, right? But that's what they turned it into. They turned it into a religion just based on tradition and works. And like many believers today, they believe that those man-made rules were enough. And I know it sounds crazy, but believe it or not, we still fall into that same trap because a lot of times we think, well, I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday and Wednesday, and I'm supposed to go to my Bible study, and I've got to make sure I have my devotions done. If I do all those things, I'm good. They're rules that are easy to attain, so we are drawn to them, right? And we still have that mentality today. Well, I'm, I'm doing enough. I'm going to church. They're not. See how you start comparing yourself to others? Well, I go to church. They don't, so I'm better than them. Same thing still goes on today. So James takes the time here to explain exactly what pure and undefiled or unmaligned religion truly looks like. Look at this, James 1.27. He says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distresses and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So you notice that he's saying pure religion manifests itself in actions, in godly actions. Again, now, th this isn't the religion like we generally understand it. Okay, and this is different from the religion we saw in verse 26. Remember in verse 26, the Greek word for religion was thraskos, and it's a masculine adjective. That's what was used in verse 26, right? And, and again, it just means a pious or hypocritical, uh, hypocritical display of spiritual virtue. But in verse 27, if you look at it, the Greek word for religion is thraskeia, and it's a feminine noun. Okay, it means genuine acts of worship dedicated to a supernatural power. And the words to pay attention to there is the religion that, that, that James said was pure and undefiled is a religion that is about dedicating everything you do as an act of worship to God. You don't do it so other people will think you're better than them. You don't do it so you can look good or look righteous. You do it for one reason. You don't care if anybody sees what you're doing. The paper doesn't have to report on it. You just do it because you want to be pleasing to God. You want to do those as acts of worship. One thing that troubles me about churches in this era, and we will never be there as long as I'm pastor, is that they want everything they do to be known by the media. Listen, I want everything we do here to be known by Jesus. Other than that, I don't care. You know what? Because the media probably wouldn't look favorably on it anyway, would they? So as long as Jesus is happy with it, I'm happy with it, right? So James was saying, true, devout acts of worship are manifested in our humble service of God, only desire, with our only desire being wanting to please God. He didn't want us to have acts of righteousness that are just designed to give us bragging rights. He wanted us to have genuine acts of worship through service that are pleasing to God. Now, in verse 26 and 27, we start seeing some things that uh, James said in chapter 1 come into practice. For example, he said in James chapter 1, when we first started, remember he said, be swift to hear, which means... Uh, it, it should inspire us to take a deeper look at the Word of God and listen to it and follow it. That's what it was talking about. See, God's Word inspires those he said were doers of the Word to put his Word into action. And you see how he's transitioning into that in, this, uh, in these verses. 
Those who are employing those teachings that we just talked about in James chapter 1, they're swift to hear, they're slow to speak, slow to get angry, and they're doers of the word, not hearers of the word. Those employing James' teachings like that were more resistant to worldly influence. Here's something I've learned a long time ago. It's hard to do what's right if you're not staying close to God. It is. It's hard. Listen, when you were kids, were you tempted to do wrong when your parents were standing right there? Or are you tempted to do what's wrong when you were with your buddies? You know, see what I mean? The closer you were to mom and dad, the less likely you were to break any rules, the less likely you were to stray off the path. It's kind of the same thing here. Those who are doing what James said here, which was, you know, obviously inspired by God, were, you know, they were more resistant to that worldly influence and those worldly temptations. Now, in chapter 2, which we're getting ready to jump into here, James cites some examples of those worldly influences or temptations. So let's jump to chapter 2, starting in verse 1. James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of what? Personal favoritism. How many people here have ever been the victim of a workplace or a church or a school or a peer group that showed favoritism to just certain people? Anybody ever play a sport where favoritism was shown to certain people? I mean, it's pretty common. But he says that we're not to have... Uh, an attitude of personal favoritism. See, the world determines the value of people on a vastly different scale than God does. See, the world loves to show preferential treatment to those that they see as more valuable. Okay, and the world has a system in their mind that, that tells them who's valuable. The world thinks that the wealthy and the powerful and the successful and the influential, those are valuable people. But those people who have lost their jobs and are living in a cardboard box, they're worth nothing. The world would be better without them. I have heard people, many who probably claim to be Christians, say we would be better if that group, whatever it may be, were wiped off the face of the earth. And I'm like, wow, I just see Jesus all over you. Or wait, maybe I see him running from you. you know? I hear that stuff all the time, and it absolutely drives me crazy. That's the world standard. Okay, That's the world standard of righteousness. And... So they, they prefer to show favoritism to those who are wealthy and those who are powerful and those who are influential and successful. And realistically, they do it with selfish motives in mind. The reason they show them preferential treatment is they're hoping somehow that will bless them. They're hoping that by showing them preferential treatment, they will give them things. It will profit them. It's completely, completely self-serving. But James said believers shouldn't be like that. We should be completely different than that. See, James wanted his readers, these, these Jews in Palestine that were scattered all over, these Christian Jews uh, that were scattered all over Palestine, he wanted them to see people the way God sees people. And God sees every person as equally valuable. Every person as equally valuable. Right Now, Paul told the Galatians the same thing, but just in greater detail. We're going to jump back to Galatians 3 again, starting in verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You guys are killing me here. Let's try that again. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice he keeps pushing that. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27. For all of you were baptized. If you're following along, underscore that. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now first let me say this is not a proof text for baptismal regeneration. And what that means is there's a, there are some denominations out there that believe that your salvation is not complete until you are dunked. And then once you become baptized, your salvation is complete. And that is not biblical at all. And let me explain this. I've explained this before, but I'm going to explain it again. Okay, the word baptized in the Greek 
is baptizo, and it literally has two meanings. One is literal and one is figurative. But it's the same word used in all these instances, but one is literal and one is figurative, right? The literal meaning is to be immersed in water. Now, people, I say, why do you immerse people in water? Why do you believe in immersion? I'm like, because that's the only thing the Bible teaches, is immersion. Is it wrong if someone was sprinkled? No, I'm not religious. It's the intent of the heart at baptism that matters. It's just that I want to stay as close to his commands as possible, and the literal meaning for baptizo is to be immersed in water. Now, the figurative meaning of baptizo, same word, is to affiliate yourself with something or to be affiliated with. That's the figurative meaning. Now, to give you examples, and I'm not going to go there. You can go there later. But in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus came to John, and he said, I need you to baptize me, baptizo. Same word, I need you to baptize me. And this is the literal use of the word baptizo because John obeyed Jesus. At first he said, what? You are the Lamb of God. Why would you want me to baptize you? And he said, just, just do it so that the, the, the prophecies can be fulfilled. Baptize me. So John was obedient, and he immersed Jesus in the river. Right? That was a literal meaning of baptizo use. Then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, Paul uh, said that all those who followed Moses into the Red Sea, now remember the Red Sea parted and it says they went through on dry ground, right? Remember that. But Paul said that all those who followed Moses into the Red Sea were baptized unto Moses. But none of them got wet. How, did they have a dirt baptism, a sand baptism, a mud baptism? No, it's, it's, the, it's the figurative meaning. It meant that all those who believed that Moses was from God and that Moses was leading them in the right direction went into the middle of that sea with him to affiliate themselves with his teaching and with what he was saying. They believed that he was God's messenger and by following him, they affiliated themselves with him and his teachings about God. So there is the, the figurative meaning. Now in Galatians, Paul used baptizo figuratively. Okay, because in verse 26, Paul made it clear that eternal life came through uh, faith alone and Christ alone. He made that very, very plain before he jumped to verse 27. Then in verse 27, Paul was talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of you who were baptized into Christ. Just like, remember, baptized into Moses was figurative. Baptized into Christ here is also figurative because this is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many people have heard of that, baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's one of those doctrines that gets maligned in some of these some of these, you know, denominations, and it, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to be a part of the club to get that. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to speak in tongues. You don't have to levitate off the ground. You don't have to, you know, be an IU fan, but now would not be a good time to make that godly. But anyway, that's not what it's talking about. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, the moment you believe, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves inside you and gives you an eternal representation of God in you. So you are eternally affiliated with Jesus the moment you believe. That's what Paul was talking about there, the figurative meaning. Now in verse 28, Paul makes it clear that God doesn't show favoritism in any way, and he doesn't expect those people who follow him to either. Look at this, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now remember, the Jews hated Gentiles. And just to show they were equal opportunity haters, a Gentile to them was anybody who was not a Jew. Anyone who was not a Jew, they didn't like them. The Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile or half, you know, uh, you know pagan, basically. 
And they hated them so bad that if they made a trip, they would map out a way to where they wouldn't have to walk through their Samaritan cities because they said they didn't want those dogs' dirt on their feet. That's, I mean, they were the original haters, right? They were the original haters. So he makes this really plain. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, which had to stun some of the Jews. There is neither slave nor free man. Now, in our day, that would be, uh, God doesn't show favoritism to the employer any more than he does the employee. Uh, There is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. Now, if if an Orthodox Jew heard that, they would tear their garments and sit in sackcloth and ashes and mourn, because that would be blasphemy to them. They prided themselves in being God's chosen people being descendants of Abraham. But God tells us uh, in the New Testament that the real descendants of Abraham are those who believe in what Abraham believed. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's why he's called the father of faith. Those who believe God in faith like Abraham did, those are his true descendants. And that had to light their fires. So he was not going to show partiality to anybody. He said not for their race, not for their gender, not for their nationality, their age, or their social standing, their profession. God doesn't show favoritism to anyone because all who believed are promised to be heirs of the kingdom through Jesus. Now, when believers show favoritism or prejudices, which are very, very similar, when they do that, it is a sin, and it's an insult to God's plan. That's why it makes me so mad. I, you know, it should never happen that a Christian is prejudiced against anybody. It shouldn't happen, but it does. But that's something that is a sin. And here's what that includes. Prejudices and favoritism includes this. Racism is a sin. Okay? Debate it all you want. I'll prove it to you anytime you want to sit down in the Bible with me. Racism is a sin. Sexism is a sin. Xenophobia is a sin. Xenophobia means you hate someone because of where they're from. You hate them because they're from China. You hate them because they're from Japan or Germany. That's xenophobia. All those things are sin. And we always try to justify it. Well, I don't like them because I went to war and I had to fight those people. Well, they probably didn't want to fight you either. Right? There's no reason for us to have any kind of prejudices. Because, listen, believers or people in general who are racist or sexist or xenophobics prove two things about themselves. Without fail, they prove two things. Okay, now write this down. I am saying this, and I am going to insult you if you're one of those. All right, but if you're a racist or a sexist or a xenophobic, you've proved two things to me about you. First of all, you suffer with social ignorance. When you open your mouth, all you spew is hate and social ignorance. You you show me how ignorant you are by believing God made one person or gender or nationality better than another. Okay, that shows me social ignorance, and it shows me scriptural ignorance. Because if you can read that Bible and come out of that with that somebody is worth less than somebody else, when Jesus came to get rid of that, when Jesus died on a cross to get rid of that mentality, if you, if you believe that, then you are spiritually ignorant and God will discipline you. Your life will not be blessed. And I don't care what your justification is. I don't care if it's political. I don't care what it is. Politics has no place in faith. You have every right to be political, but be a Christian first. Right? Let that guide everything you do. Because those Christians who choose to, be, to show preference or to be, you know, to be racist or to be sexist or xenophobes, 
they will be disciplined by God. God will not bless that life. Now, next, James clarifies uh, what he's writing by using an illustration of, of worldly favoritism. This is pretty cool because he cites I mean, a very specific example of what worldly favoritism looks like or in action. James 2, 2 through 4. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, that's probably Steelers jerseys, or dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down by my footstool, underscore by my footstool if you're following along. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? I love that. See, at that time, the Jews unapologetically, I mean unapologetically favored the wealthy, the powerful, and the influential. They did, and they didn't make any bones about it, right? They would greet the wealthy at the door and treat them as these guests of honor, right? They treated them like they're just the honored guests just because they knew they were wealthy and they were hoping to get something from them, right? The Jews believed that status made one more valuable than another. That's what they believed. That's how far they had fallen, right? They thought that made them more important than another person, if they had a better status. They would even give them the best seats in their synagogues. You know, I was talking to a girl, uh, and I asked her, and I'm not saying that every synagogue does this, so if you're Jewish and watching, I'm thankful to have you here, but don't email me. Um, but this young lady was Jewish uh, of one sector or another, and I said, uh, I was trying to witness to her, and she says, I need to get back to synagogue. And I thought, well, you know, anything's better than nothing. Maybe God will speak to her through something in the, in the Pentateuch or the Old Testament. So I said, okay. I said, uh, well, why don't you do that? Why don't you get back to synagogue? She said, I can't afford it. I said, well, you can't afford the gas. You don't have a car. She said, no, you have to purchase your seats ahead of time. And she said, they go really fast. The people with big money buy out big sections. So I, I never have the money to go. And all I could see was Pharisee, Sadducee swimming around in my head when I heard that. I was, I was stunned. That still lives on today. Because back then they would do the same thing. Oh, you're wealthy? Then you take the good seat. You sit up here by me. Take the good seat. On the other hand, the Jews really had nothing to do with poor people. They didn't associate themselves with poor people. They thought, I have nothing to gain from you. Why would I be nice to you? And before you think that's terrible, look at your own life and see if you've pulled that same thing on somebody. As far as I'm going to take that, you can pray about that yourself, right? But they didn't have anything to do with poor or common people because they deemed them unimportant and of less value than they were or the people of status had, right? Now, evidently, not all Jewish Christians that James was writing to had gotten that old practice out of their life. They hadn't abandoned that practice yet because the word translated assembly in verse 2 says when a man comes into your assembly wearing fine clothes, the word translated assembly in verse 2 is the Greek word. Now see what this sounds like. Synagoge. What's that sound like? Well, it sounds like synagogue, right? It literally means synagogue, assembly, or meeting place. That word can be translated any one of those three ways depending on the context, right? Now, to me, I'd say meeting place seems to be the most obvious definition that fits here because he was talking to Jewish Christians, right? And after they started believing in Christ, it's highly unlikely any synagogue was going to ask them to come there or allow them to come there because they hated, uh, they hated Jesus. So he was talking about the meeting places of these Jewish Christians that where they met, where they assembled. So evidently, some of those people were actually doing exactly what the Jews did and showing favoritism to rich people. 
right? Now, the example James used in verses 2 through 4 was such a brilliant and uh, just vivid illustration of favoritism, so much so that a lot of scholars think that it was so vivid and that illustration was so vivid that James had probably witnessed it. James had probably been in one of those churches around Palestine and saw them show favoritism to someone who was wealthy or someone of high stature. He probably saw that, and that's why he was so distinct when he made that, right? Because like the Jews, they were starting to show favoritism in these Christian meetings. Uh, Now, those who looked wealthy and prominent, they treated as honored guests, right? And they were starting to say, hey, you get a good seat, just like the Jews did. Uh, And they gave them the best seats, actually. Uh, but the poor, when they arrived, the ones that looked poor, when they arrived, they would say, you go stand over there or under my footstool, okay, or under my footstool. Now that, that's, that's really important that you understand that. The phrase, you stand over there or sit under my footstool, is very descriptive in the Greek. Because in the Greek, it gives the idea, this is no joke, in the Greek, it gives the idea that they were asking them to, stand, to go under the stage where the speaker was speaking and stay there till it was over. Like a dog. Sit. That's, that's, what it was, that's what it was like. They were basically telling them, get out of the way or hide under the stage. Just stay out of everybody's sight. Nobody wants to see your poor hind end in here. That's what they were saying. So it was very, very insulting, and James didn't like it. They were treating uh, believers, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, like, like common dogs, showing them just acting just like the Jews who'd been persecuting them. Now, sadly, I hate to say this, but I've witnessed this very same thing go on in churches and religions today, favoritism. Now, you don't have to say the name. I, as a matter of fact, please don't. But how many people in here have ever witnessed favoritism in church? Let me see your hands. If you haven't, you haven't been to many of them, right? Because I know pastors today who would allow a serial killer to be in leadership if they had a lot of money. I know pastors today who have allowed people that everybody in the community knows doesn't live a life that reflects Jesus on a board because they're wealthy, right? And that is using the same mindset we saw out of those Jews and those early Jewish Christians. Because all favoritism is a sin in the eyes of God. And James explains that a little bit more when we look in verses 5 through 7. And it's important to note, these, these verses I'm about to read, verses 5 through 7, are often misinterpreted. And I'll explain that in a minute. So James 2, 5 through 7 says, Listen, listen my beloved brethren. Again, we know he's talking to believers. Uh, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who what? Those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Talking about blaspheming Christ. Now, a lot of people think James is bashing people just for being successful or wealthy or influential. And that's not what's going on here. He was not bashing them. Remember, I said this before. Abraham was very wealthy. Some say a billionaire in our status, in our time. And God used him powerfully. He was the father of faith, is what a lot of people call him. David was very wealthy. Solomon was very wealthy. God used both of them. He's not bashing people for being wealthy, right? James is just saying God judges, blesses, saves, and disciplines everybody equally, no matter what or who they are or what the people think of them. It doesn't matter, right? God's love isn't based on our ethnicity, it's not based on our race, our gender, our gender, and certainly not on our financial situation. That's not how God's love is based. It's based on his great love for his creation. None of that other stuff even plays into it, right? In Acts 10, 34, I love this. Opening his, opening his mouth, Peter said, by the way, when you hear opening his mouth, Peter said, usually you can cringe because it could be something 
he usually jams his foot so deep in there he could wiggle his toes and tickle his kidneys. But I'm just saying, he was bad about sticking his foot in his mouth, big time. All right? So he says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show what? Not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. All right, so James explained that the wealth and power have been looked at in the wrong way. Wealth and power are not synonymous with righteous or righteousness. The Jews thought it was. Well, you must be doing right. Look how God's blessed you. You forget a few things. If, you're, if these were Christian Jews believing that way, they were forgetting some things, right? James reminded them, listen, have you forgotten it's usually the wealthy who's persecuting you, right? Because those, the wealthy, those wealthy Jews a lot of times would drag them into court either because of their faith or because they wanted to collect money that was owed to them. Anything they could do to get them tossed in jail, it was usually the wealthy that was doing that. It was also the wealthy and powerful Jews who blasphemed the name of Jesus, right? And actually, some of them were instrumental in the false accusing, torturing, and killing of Jesus. He's saying, have you forgotten that? Then he says, listen, God used a lot of poor people to accomplish his will. I can think of one overriding figure standing tall in my mind that was poor that God used to change the world. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Jesus. Jesus was poor. You hear some of these name it, claim it theologians saying, well, Jesus was rich. He, had, he didn't even know what to do with all his money. He had so much money, he didn't even notice that, that Judas was stealing from him. I'm like, yeah, except he's God and he knows everything. But, right, listen, Jesus was poor. The Bible says the foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. He was homeless. What's your opinion of homeless people again? Because Jesus chose to be homeless. He was one of them. Now, I personally have a heart for those who don't have much because I don't have much, right? I have a heart for those people. I understand the struggle, you know? But that being said, I have to say something. You have to have a different perspective of what wealth is before you start whining about your life. You have to have a different perspective. I have to say that I consider myself very wealthy and very blessed. I do. I consider myself very wealthy and very blessed. But the kind of wealth I have can't be measured by my bank accounts or my wallet or my income. The kind of wealth I have can't be measured by my possessions. If you're going to measure it like that, you're right, I'm poor, right? But the kind of wealth I have is, can only be measured by the confidence I have that God will give me everything I need exactly when I need it. Every time I hit my knees, I feel so wealthy because I know everything I'm about to ask for, God can and will give me if it's his will. And I trust in that, and that makes me wealthy. Because I feel like the kid who can ask his billionaire dad for anything, and if he thinks he need, you need it, he'll give it to you, right? That's why I feel wealthy, and I, and I feel blessed, right? I know that God has given me something so valuable that it's going to follow me into eternity. I love that. See, believers would do well, to, I mean, to really listen to what James is trying to say here. Because today it seems believers are looking for reasons to divide more than they're looking to unify. I got a great project for you sometime. Look in your life and see all the things you're involved in that, that promote separatism. See if you're one of those believers that has chosen who is worthy of your time or not. Because if you have, it's sin, right? So... It really bugs me that today so many people are really looking for reasons to divide more than unify. What James is saying in verses 5 through 7 
should remind us that all that matters is that we love God. Because, because it's those who truly love God who are the heirs of the kingdom. Now let me explain that. The kingdom he's talking about is the millennial kingdom. During that thousand year reign before we go to the final heaven, right? Before we go to New Jerusalem. And heirs of that kingdom are people who have lived faithfully and love God. And they get to have a role in that kingdom. So that's why I quote this all the time, but I'm going to do it again. That's why Jesus explained what loving him means. John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Because those who keep his commandments will be blessed in the kingdom. They'll be heirs of that kingdom, get to serve in that kingdom. Listen, here's the thing you have to remember. It doesn't matter if the world knows your name. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the world looks at you as important or looks at you as worthless. None of that means anything. Here's what matters. How does God see you? How does God see you? Because if you love God, he has promised that he's going to provide all your needs, right? And, I, and I, I think, you know, we have all known somebody that at one time had everything and lost it all. I knew a man who was a pastor. He owned a construction company in Florida, and it did very well. Then he started getting involved in drugs. He, you know, he got addicted to cocaine. This was before he was a pastor, obviously. And then he started dealing it. And when he started dealing, he got very wealthy. He had two or three homes in Florida. He, I mean, he, had, he was very, very wealthy until the FBI showed up at his door one day. Right? Then the wealth went away as fast as it came. Overnight, he went from millionaire to nothing. And while he was sitting in jail, he found Jesus. He comes out, uh, studies, becomes a pastor, and what a unique perspective this man had on what matters in your life. What, it was just a unique perspective. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you, okay? Because you can have something today and it can be gone tomorrow, right? But unlike wealth and un unlike status and unlike, you know, influence, God, what God gives us can't be taken away by the world. Did you ever think about that? Everything we hold dear, the government can take from us. You know the government can take your children? Do you know that? Good luck taking mine. I'm a Second Amendment guy. I'm just kidding. I'm just saying. But the government can take your children. The government can take your home. They can seize your bank accounts under suspicion. The IRS doesn't have to have proof. If they think you're not paying your taxes, they can freeze your accounts. And you go to write a check, and they're like, you have nothing. That quick, it can all go away. Everything we have, our homes can be taken, our cars can be taken. Everything we have can be taken away from us by this country. But there are two things that this country and this world cannot take away from us. Two things. Our eternal relationship with Jesus and the love that Jesus has for us. They can't take it. Maybe that's why they hate him so bad, because they can't get their hands on him. Right? That's something we have that no one can take away from us, and I think that makes all of us wealthy. Now let's close up here on verses 8 through 10. It says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, that's the same as the law of liberty, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in what? One point, he has become guilty of it all. One thing always seems uh, to elude the Jews when you read about their history, and that was religion doesn't equal righteousness either. It's not about how religion you, religious you are to become righteous. That's why mankind needed the grace of God. We could not be good enough. The Jews were attempting to do something that was impossible. 
They were trying to be righteous on their own. That's impossible because the only way you can be righteous enough for God is to be perfect. I mean absolutely perfect. Okay, and the law was designed to show mankind they could never be perfect. They could never be perfect. Honestly, Paul tells us it's impossible even to be good. Look at this. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There, are none, uh, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does, who does good, not even, not even one. Yet somehow the Jews translated that as keeping part of the law is good enough. Listen, if you can't keep it all, don't, it's worthless to you. right? Since perfection is impossible for human beings... Self-righteousness is the, is the mindset of a fool. To be self-righteous means you are delusional because there is no righteousness in and of you. Our self has no righteousness in it. And let's be honest, that person you see in the mirror every morning who knows how you act in traffic, hypothetically, that person who knows how you act to people you don't like, right? that person who knows the money you're hiding and not claiming, that person, only you and God know that person. And if you're honest with yourself, you look at that person in the mirror and say, we are not righteous, nor will we ever be. Thank goodness we found Jesus. Now in verses 11 through 13, he points out the danger of living in hypocrisy. He says uh, in verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That was a stab at the Jews. He's saying, yeah, great, you tithe, but you don't show mercy. So it doesn't matter, you're still not keeping all the law. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are being judged by the law of liberty. Again, the law of liberty was the, you know, the culmination of, of Christ and his ministry. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he basically said, practice the word of God that you are preaching or you're just a hypocrite. That's what James was saying. And James reminded these Palestinian Jewish Christians how they would be judged. They weren't going to be judged by the Old Testament law like the Jews believed. That wasn't going to happen. They would be judged by the law of liberty or how they followed the law of God through Jesus Christ and their faith. The law never brought liberty to any man because no man could keep it all. And the Old Testament law was designed to point them to the liberty that came from Jesus and from Jesus fulfilling that law. And because Jesus has set us free or given us liberty... Through faith in him and him alone, it's called the law of liberty. So to sum it all up, believers should avoid the traps of religion and favoritism because being religious or showing partiality, honestly, it only serves uh, to place us in, a, in an unidentified place in our life, a place where God cannot use us, God cannot bless us, and all that he can do is discipline us. That's where it puts us if we're involved in either one of those things. So I know this is a tough section, but I love this section because, listen, I sit back and watch what's going on in the Christian churches today, and I'm disgusted. Because we have forgotten everyone's important. We have forgotten that our job is to be merciful, not build palaces. We've forgotten that when we, when we set things up, like soon here we're going to be building our new sanctuary. And talking to the people who are building them, they're like, you want this? No. You want this? No. I don't want statues. I don't want fountains. I don't want rivers and stuff. But you know what I want? Room for people to sit. That's what I want. I want a place to worship that is cold in the summer and hot in the winter. <laughs> I want a place where we can serve the community. I want a place where we can have camps, a place where we can reach more than we've ever reached before. Listen, 
when churches get away from that and start looking at value differently, nothing follows but trouble and ruin. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always give an invitation. If you're not sure where you stand with Christ, that's between you and God, but I want to pray for you. Or if you just need prayer, that's what this time is for. So if you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact with the rest of those people and put your head right back down. I'm not going to chase you down. And I do pray for you. Bless those people. If you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. Bless those people, and I'm going to be praying for you. But believers, it seems like as the world gets crazier, scary to think it could get crazier, but as the world gets crazier, and as people get more divisive, and as people start, you know, bickering more and dividing more and hating more, the field becomes more ripe for us to minister to them. You know what makes darkness run? Light. And we are supposed to be the light of Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy. I love you for, you, I love you for your grace, and I thank you for your grace. And God, I just know that if it wasn't for the grace of, you, of your son Jesus, I, I, I wouldn't have had a chance. I couldn't be good enough. I, di- I didn't have anything to offer in exchange. I didn't have the money So I'm thankful money didn't purchase righteousness. I'm just thankful that you love us just like we are. And you'll accept us just like we are. You'll make the changes that need to be made. We don't have to do anything. All we need to do is believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life. And you've promised you'll give it to us. So if there's someone who's listening or watching or here who doesn't know your son, Lord, I just pray that they would make that step today and contact us so we can walk with them in their new journey of faith. And God, for those of us who are believers... Help us shed the politics, shed the stereotypes, the favoritism that's in our lives, and look at everyone like you do, with eyes of love, and share the message you shared. Whosoever will believe will have eternal life. Let us be lights in this dark world. We just pray, God, as we leave here, you'd keep us safe, that we live what we profess, and most importantly, that if you don't return to take us home before we get to come together again, we pray we'd come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.